pursuing the truth, living in love. Veritas is a grassroots network of Catholic young adults growing together in Christ. For more information or to see a schedule of Veritas events, visit catholicveritas.com. That's catholicveritas.com. Today's podcast features a monk cellar event with Father Cassian Di Rocco. After having served as a school psychologist on the West and East Coasts, he discerned a calling to the Holy Priesthood. His priestly studies were completed in Rome, where he obtained a doctoral degree in theology from the Pontifical John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and the Family. He is currently ministering at St. Stephen the First Martyr Parish in Sacramento, California, an apostolate of the priestly fraternity of St. Peter. In this episode, Father Cassian looks at the tremendous importance which marriage has in a true understanding of the Catholic faith as a whole, the sacramental life, the spiritual life, the moral life, and how all of this is a part of Christ's redeeming and spousal love for his bride, the Church. Let's tune in. Okay, so I'm sorry for the long delay we're not here for these uh, introductions, of course, but our speaker tonight, we're so blessed to have him here. He's in a particularly strange situation because uh, he's at a point in his vocation where God is calling him to serve the church as a priest in the fraternity of St. Peter. So right now he's uh, living in St. Stephen, the first martyr, which is a great parish. I know a lot of us, some of you go to that parish, and so you can see him there at least through Lent until the, the uh, transition, I guess we would say, becomes official. And he's been a priest of God uh, for since 2013, and he's a California native. So please uh, give a big round of applause to Father Cachadaroga. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, we come to you and commit ourselves to your most sacred heart in union with the Immaculate Heart of Mary and the just heart of Joseph, her most chaste spouse, as these three hearts filled the holy house of Nazareth with joy, with love, and with life, so fill our hearts with that same joy, that love, and that life. We ask this in all things through the intercession of each of our guardian angels and our patron saints, in the name of the most blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This is going to be the most difficult talk I've given in a long time. You ever heard the best way to torture an Italian, right? Tie his hands together and tell him to speak. So I got a mic in one and notes another. I have no idea how this is going to go. All right. So it helps me when I give a talk to title the talk, to help me to focus on a particular theme and to help you to focus with me. So the title that I've given this talk tonight is very, very simple. It's called The Numptual Mystery. Numptual because every single facet of our faith is touched by marriage and the family. Mystery because our faith is a very, very deep, deep entity in the sacred heart of Jesus. And marriage takes us deep into every single facet of that faith. In tonight's talk, The Numptual Mystery, I'm going to be speaking about marriage from many, many different angles. So think of this as a kind of survey look at marriage and the family through the sacred scriptures, a little bit through the sacred liturgy significant amount through the history of the church 
and a little bit about the present day of what marriage faces and how we are to stand in the nuptial mystery and the reality in which Christ calls us to live. Beginning where we should always begin, I'd like to begin with the sacred scriptures right from the beginning, where the scriptures begin, we begin tonight. The very first commandment that was given by God to man was not the commandments given to Moses on Sinai. That happened much later in salvation history. The very first time that God looks at the human person and speaks in the imperative when he says, do this, is in the very beginning of the book of Genesis, when he looks upon Adam and Eve, whom he has created, and says, be fruitful and multiply. It says that God has created man in his own image and in his own likeness. And the first thing that he wishes the human person to do is to, in some sense, become like him, a unitive and creative power of love. Now, when we speak about God's image and likeness, and we look at it in relationship to the very first command that he's given, if that was the first thing that God had to say to man, obviously it has something deep to do with this plan for human happiness and human flourishing. To say that it is an imperative to be fruitful and multiply is to look at the union of man and woman and see their unity as primary for their happiness and their procreativity as primary for their happiness. I'll be speaking about this later in the talk, but some word pairs might help us here. Unity and procreativity, bonding and babies, fidelity and fruitfulness, love and life. This is all encompassed in the first commandment that God gave. When we read in this same passage of Genesis that man was made in the image and likeness of God, we remember that image and likeness are not identical. To be made in the image of God is a datum that we cannot change. God is eternal, having no beginning and no end. He creates us immortal with a beginning, but like him, having no end. Once we are given the gift of human conception and the gift of human birth, there is nothing that can take us out of existence. The question is, where and with whom will we live eternity? And the way we live that image and likeness is key. Being made in the image of God means that like God, we are one. So if you look at yourself in the mirror, you see an image of God's unicity, his oneness. God has an intellect and God has a will. God is thinking and God is loving. With our intellect we know and with our will we attach to the object of our knowledge so that we can love. That's being made in the image of God as one. Being made in the image of God as more than one is also a key component of our life. Indeed, God is one, but he is also many, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How does the Trinity relate to one another within the internal relationships of the Trinitarian life? But through love. The Father pours himself out in love to the Son. The Son pours himself out in love to the Father in a love so perfect that it is a person of the Holy Spirit. The Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches here that God is an eternal exchange of love, and we, in his image and likeness, are called to participate intimately in that exchange. We cannot do that alone. We need one another. And the most perfect image of the Blessed Trinity on earth is the family, father, mother, child. When the two become one, if all goes well, a third is born, an image of the Blessed Trinity. 
How then do we live our likeness to God? Our likeness to God can change even though the image remains static, as it were, a kind of datum of human birth that can't be taken away. We live our likeness to God through a virtuous life, becoming more and more like God through grace, through the gifts of the mystical life, through the graces of the sacramental life. Christ founded his church so that we can become like God, in union with God, both as one, created in his likeness as one, and as three, or more than one, created in a what John Paul II called a communio personarum, a communion of persons. The essential thing about marriage, and the way that marriage is a likeness to God, is through complementarity, through male and female. From the very beginning, even before we talk about faith, we first speak about humanity and we speak about creation and the way that masculinity and femininity is mirrored in the created order. I've heard the philosopher Peter Kreeft explain it this way. He says, think of the places that we love to go, the places that we love to spend our time. We like to go to the beach where the sands jut out into the beautiful blue of the ocean, an image of masculinity and femininity. We go to the mountains, where the great crags of the mountains reach into the bright blue sky, an image of masculinity and femininity. We go to the forest to be still in God's created beauty of nature, where the trees reach into the clouds as an image of masculinity and femininity. When we look at many of the languages of our cultures of origin, what we often call romance languages, languages like Spanish, Italian, French, we have nouns in word pairs broken down into masculine nouns and feminine nouns. And this becomes most poignant in word opposites which denote together a composite whole, like day and night. Jour, nuit, masculine, feminine, day and night. Giorno, notte, masculine and feminine, day and night. Dia, noche, masculine, and feminine, day and night. One without the other would be only half of the story. One without the other would be broken. And some of you might have heard me say this before, but marriage is that place where two holes, W-H-O-L-E, make an even greater whole, W-H-O-L-E. The two becoming one are stronger together. Marriage is part of the created order from the beginning because God predicates salvation history upon it. Now, we continue on with a look at scriptures to see how the spousal mystery is present through all phases and facets of the sacred scriptures. Every single book of the sacred scripture is a story. And every single book of the sacred scripture bespeaks a deeper story of the soul in union with Christ our God, bride to bridegroom. In the very, very beginning, in the book of Genesis, salvation's history begins with a marriage, the union of Adam and Eve, our very first parents. When we go all the way to the end of the Bible in the book of, the Re of Revelation, we see the heavenly life depicted as marital imagery, the wedding feast of the Lamb. In the very beginning of the book of Genesis, the first human words spoken are marital words. When Adam looks at his beautiful bride Eve and for the first time he speaks and says, at last, the one. In other words, the one for whom I have been waiting to make my life complete. 
At the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the very last human words spoken are marital words. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, Lord Jesus. The kind of invitation to the wedding feast. If we were to open up our Bible about halfway down, we would fall open at the Song of Songs, which both Pope Benedict XVI and Pope St. John Paul II have called erotic love poetry, which is divinely inspired. Backing up from the Psalms and the Old Covenant, we have the prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Jeremiah, all of whom speak of God's relationship to his people as a spousal love that will never fail. And when we go into the heart of the sacred scriptures and the Holy Gospels, we see Jesus, as it were, announcing himself as the savior of the world through the wedding at Cana, assisted by his beautiful blessed mother. Our whole life story is a marital story. And if that sounds strange coming from a celibate Catholic priest, I assure you that it is not. The ultimate call of the human person is a spousal call. It is the marriage of the Lamb. And as we hear our Lord say in the Gospel of Matthew, they neither marry nor are given in marriage in heaven because they are already enjoying the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so the witness of consecrated life is saying, and by the way, when I talk about sacrifice, remember what the measure of sacrifice is. The measure of sacrifice is the goodness and the value of what it is or who it is that you're giving up. The church does not denigrate marriage in her choice for consecrated life and celibacy. She says that this great order of love and life, this greatest and highest calling, as it were, that a person can enter into through the unity of the body, is being set aside for the unity of the soul with Christ and spousal relationship in anticipation of the marriage of the Lamb. And so in some sense, married couples need the consecrated witness to remind them of what it is they're living for and what they're dying for while the person living consecrated life needs the marital witness to remind us how we are to give the gift of our lives away. All of this is rooted in sacred scripture and it is rooted in the soul's hunger for God. Without marital imagery, we cannot understand the life of the church and we cannot understand salvation history. Think about the way we speak of God and his saving action. God the Father has sent Christ, his son, to take the church as his bride so that we can become brothers and sisters of one another, adopted sons and daughters of the father in the family of the church. Without marriage and without family, this imagery means nothing. An attack on marriage and the family is nothing less than an attack on Trinitarian imagery and likeness in the life of the soul and in social life itself. Now having said that, what is marriage? We can talk about this naturally, which is where we must begin, because that's where God began, and then we speak about it supernaturally, through the eyes of the sacramental life. Naturally speaking, <clears throat> marriage is, and I quote to you, the lifelong union of one man and one woman ordered toward the procreation and education of children and the good of the spouses. There's a beautiful Latin phrase which encompasses all of this wonderfully. It's called totius consortium vitae, which means a union of the entirety of life. 
When spouses give themselves to one another at the altar, they are bonded for life. And when they bond for life, they bond all parts of themselves for life, body, soul, and spirit. They leave nothing outside of the pale, nothing outside of the door, because to do so would vitiate the marriage bond and it would make for a kind of half-hearted gift of self rather than for a fullness of self-gift. In this definition of marriage, we understand what St. Augustine calls the three bona. Bona is Latin for good things. Especially in latest legislation, let's say over the last decade in the United States of America and in Europe, we're so used to fighting for marriage that we forget marriage is beauty. To return to the Church Fathers, and especially this father, for a proper understanding of marriage, does not only restore the truth of marriage, but also the joy of marriage. The three bona are these. Fides, which is unity. Sacramentum, which is indissolubility. And proles, which is procreativity. These are the three essential dimensions of married life, and it cannot happen with a union of any two other than a man and a woman, because therein we find complementarity. The unity of the bonum fide, the first good, means that this couple bonds together not provisionally, but forever. As they so often say in their beautiful vows at the altar, until death do us part. We're reminded here that death is the only thing that can break a valid marriage bond. No human power can do that. Secondly, the bonum sacramenti, the, the good of the sacrament, means that marriage is indissoluble. They will be together forever, and neither by their own power nor by a human power outside of them can they decide to break the marriage. If the first good looks at the kind of unity which bespeaks fidelity, that is the union of these two not open sexually to other partners, the good of indissolubility is its, is its complement. The two of them are in, are in this, not only together alone, but together forever. That unity and that indissolubility lead to the third good of marriage, which is the bonum prolis, the good of children. Again, here we see the Trinitarian imagery in marriage. As the two become one, a third is born, or in many cases, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, a seventh, or an eighth. Being open to life, is a freak thing to people who don't understand the faith. But being open to life is a beautiful thing for people who want to live and love God's way of life. Now so far I haven't talked anything about marriage being a sacrament, but that is in fact the point of departure for the rest of our time together. You all know that a sacrament is an efficacious sign instituted by Christ which conveys grace. Is this not a contradiction to marriage? Because marriage has existed from the beginning as the lens and the means through which the faith is communicated. So where does Christ come into this? Christ comes into this by taking this profoundly beautiful natural reality and raising it to the dignity of a sacrament. When Mary says, they have no wine, Christ takes what is empty and what is tasteless, these jugs of water, and he creates a beautiful beverage of intoxicating life to symbolize what marriage can be for the life of the church and the life of the world. Christ does this not as some kind of removed, sterile celibate hanging out on the fringe of Cana. 
he does so as the bridegroom who will be in union with his church, as St. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, mirroring the great mystery. Not long after Cana, just three years after his public ministry begins, he will hang on the cross, which Augustine calls the marriage bed upon which the bridegroom hangs. And he will give his last word and testament to the church when he says, consummatum est, translated as, it is finished, or it is consummated. It is these words and this bridal imagery which led St. John Chrysostom to say that Christ united himself to his bride, the church, on the cross in a spiritual intercourse. Of course, here St. John Chrysostom is not talking about the physicality of the intercourse that a married couple enjoys. He is talking about what we might even believe is a deeper kind of intercourse in the literal meaning of the word, the merging of the soul with God in bridal union. This is what led Pope St. John Paul II to call the Eucharist the sacrament of bridegroom and bride. Every time we attend Holy Mass, we are attending not simply a ceremony or a set of rites and rituals, or even a beautiful pageantry, or even a beautiful traditional cultural manifestation of the church's faith. It is all of that, but it is none of that without it being the marriage of the Lamb. The enactment of Christ's spousal love with his church on Calvary happening as an inbreaking of eternity into time. Every single Holy Mass and every single celebration of the sacraments is an application of the sacramental grace given on the cross on the marriage bed of the bridegroom to bride to your immortal soul so that you too might enjoy union, spousal union with Christ your God. This brings us then to understand some phrases that might help us to just kind of hold in mind and heart what marriage is. Again, I give you some word pairs and I find these little mnemonic devices very helpful. After an hour long talk, you say, what did he say? I don't know. So we're talking about marriage being ordered to what? The good of the spouses and the procreation and education of children. Remember our word pairs. Bonding and babies. Fidelity and fruitfulness. Life and love. Unity. Procreativity. We can then understand marriage as a beautiful uh, unity of what I've heard called the four Fs. Free, full, faithful, and fruitful. Free, full, faithful, and fruitful. The very form of the sacramental life. Now, if we have a proper understanding of marriage, if we have a proper understanding of its basic scriptural structure, and a basic understanding of its sacramental significance, we then have to understand how the church, who is marriage's steward, has presented teachings on marriage and the family throughout her history so that we can understand how to live it well and how to battle against its attacks in the modern day. I start with the Council of Trent in the 16th century. The Council of Trent was convened as part of the Catholic Counter-Reformation and it was convened in Trent in northern Italy rather than in central or southern Italy to be closer to the Protestant reformers so that they can be invited to share their views. And they didn't. One of the chief among them, Martin Luther, said that there are only two sacraments, baptism and the Eucharist, 
And even then, his understanding of the Eucharist was not as full as the Catholic theology of the Eucharist. He said that marriage was not a sacrament, and Luther began to attack very, very key elements of the Catholic faith, beginning with the Holy Mass, the person of the Holy Father, the magisterium of the Church, the full, real, and true presence of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, and a sacrificial priesthood. Trent and the fathers at Trent stand up and say, we must take a stand. All of those elements were stood for at Trent, and in marriage, this is what Trent had to say. This is from the document Tametsi, T-A-M-E-T-S-I. The first thing that Trent says about marriage is that it is a sacrament, period. So there's no argument about that. The second thing that Trent says is that marriage is an ecclesial reality. In other words, marriage belongs to the church. Now, why is that important? It's important because even today we have what's called the form of marriage. If a couple is to be married in the Catholic Church, three conditions have to be present. It has to be in a church building, it has to be before a delegated minister of the church, and it has to be before two witnesses. Why? Because before the time of the Council of Trent, people could literally go off into the forest, exchange vows, call it a valid marriage, but nobody would have witnessed that being done, neither at the natural level or the supernatural level. And so very often what would happen is the husband gets tired of the wife and he disavows her. He leaves her alone without money, without shelter, and without means. Trent steps in not only for a protection of the supernatural reality of sacramental marriage, but for the protection of motherhood and the family. Trent is also where we see the institution of the announcement of weddings through what's called wedding bands, which at that time, on three consecutive feast days, Mr. and Mrs. fill-in-the-blank will be married on X date, which gives anybody the chance to stand up and say, I have a problem with this because this guy's already married, or this woman is already married, or there are reasons for which they cannot enter into a valid spousal union. Because in order to marry, we have to be free for that eternal union. I'm going to jump forward from Trent to the year 1880 under the pontificate of Pope Leo XIII. A study of Pope Leo XIII's pontificate, even through his encyclicals alone, is a study of all of the essentials of the faith. He was a prolific writer, a very, very holy soul, and led the church in an incredibly difficult time. Part of the difficulty of his time was the slow separation between the church and the state, particularly in the country of France, but not only in France, in which the state sought to abrogate marriage, or that is to say, take marriage to itself, and say, marriage doesn't belong to you, Holy Church of God, marriage belongs to us. Leo XIII essentially says in Arcanum, Call it what you want in your civil practices. We call it marriage, and marriage is ours. Now, not long after the pontificate of Pope Leo XIII, the kind of aggravation or even violence that's propitiated against marriage continues in a rapid state. I take you to the year 1930. It was just shortly before 1930 that the great Catholic writer G.K. Chesterton said there was more madness coming from Manhattan than from Moscow. What did Chesterton mean by that? What was happening in the 1920s when he wrote that? A beginning emanation of the Great Red Scare. Isn't that something that we should all be afraid of? Then why is he pointing to the shores of the United States of America? 
Could it be perhaps that America became the largest exporter of contraception, abortion, and pornography? And that anybody with a mind to see back then would have been able to predict that? In the year 1930, every single Protestant denomination, every single Protestant denomination held what the Catholic Church held, which is that contraception being introduced into the marital bond will be a kind of cancer that will vitiate marriage left, right, and center and drive marriage down. Now, just to give you an idea of what the original Protestant reformers thought about contraception, I'm going to quote to you. Martin Luther said that contraception was a form of sodomy. Calvin said that contraception was a form of murder. And Wesley said that contraception was a soul destroyer. So what happened? Why do these very same branches end up being the great champions of a contraceptive mentality rather than the champions of a, of a mentality of chastity in marriage, which is to say, every time that the couple makes love, they're open to the gift of life in every single act. This is a phenomenon that I've heard of spoken of as the sins of Luther's sons. Please remember that Christ was God, that he founded one church, and that he knew what he was doing. When we begin to break away from the church according to our own lesser lights, there is nowhere to go but down. We can maintain certain aspects of the truth, but we cannot maintain the truth in its fullness. If we do not have tradition, scripture, and the magister magisterium upon which to stand strong, then we become our own personal magisterium and our own dictator and arbiter of the truth this. They might have started in some way closer to the truth, but without these pillars they will continue to fall generation after generation until today as we stand, the Catholic Church is the only major denomination of Christianity who holds what we hold on artificial contraception, which is that it is illicit because it is deadly to marriage and the family. The Anglican Church was the first major branch of Christianity to teach explicitly for contraception in what is called the Lambeth Conference. In the same year, Pope Pius XI and his encyclical Casti Cunubii, which means chaste wedlock, in a most beautiful explanation of what marriage truly is, stands firmly and without any ambiguity for the, for the truth of the marital bond. And he says, contraception will destroy you. I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, of course. Contraception will destroy you if you let it in. But as the saying goes, once the horse is out of the barn, it is too late to close the doors. And most every Protestant denomination capitulated after this. Not long after the pontificate of Pope Pius XI, we have the pontificate of Pope Pius XII, a time of great thriving in the church. And I'm going to go a little bit deeper into the history of the church through his pontificate here. Pius XII, in his famous address to midwives and in other beautiful discourses to married couples, continues to accentuate and to emphasize the heroic virtue that couples can exercise if they are not ready to accept children into their marital bond for good reason. And he lets couples know that with the grace of Christ, there is nothing you can't do when you want your yes to mean yes and your no to mean no. Now, Pius had had some knocks on the door saying, Holy Father, it is time to convoke an ecumenical council. And he 
knocks back and says the time is not prudent to convoke an ecumenical council. And he writes many documents, but among the key documents are these. He writes Divino Afflato Spiritu on the sacred scriptures. He writes Mystici Corporis Christi on the Holy Church of God. He writes Mediator Dei on the sacred liturgy. And he writes Humane Generis, which is a kind of third syllabus of errors on the truth of the human person. These decrees, or these papal encyclicals, answer in no uncertain terms and teach in no uncertain terms what the Church knows and believes about these realities. The divine inspiration of the sacred scriptures, the divine origin of Christ's holy Church, the beautiful integrity of the sacred liturgy, and the call to union with God of the human person. When Vatican II, because now we're going to the pontificate of Pope John XXIII, right after Pius XII's pontificate, when Vatican II is convoked by Pope John XXIII, we must remember a theologian speaking at the Council of Trent who said, to convoke an ecumenical council without the gravest of need is to tempt God. We have similar encyclicals from the Second Vatican Council speaking of the divine institution of the church, the divine revelation of the sacred scriptures, the call to union of the human person, and the sacred liturgy. But they are more ambiguous than what one pope did through the mastery of his pen, his mind, and his heart, and they open the door for rather a kind of renegade mentality that begins to sweep the church and has everything to do with tonight's talk. Pope John XXIII, right around the time that he convokes the Second Vatican Council, establishes a commission to study the question of contraception. Pope John XXIII was a very, very orthodox pope. You will never find anything heterodox in any of his writings, either in his personal journals, his public statements, or his public writings. And I can say, I think we can say together, that his convoking of this commission was done in total goodwill, in keeping with the mind of the church. But he was old and he was sick, and he died. The Second Vatican Council seeks to take up the question of artificial contraception in Gaudium et Spes. And in number 48 of Gaudium et Spes, we see some beautiful, beautiful teachings on marriage and the family. But they defer the question of contraception from the authority of an ecumenical council to the authority of one man, Pope Paul VI. Now, Pope Paul VI was a kind of reclusive character. He was strong in many, many ways, but he was very, very gentle, tending to introversion in many, many other ways. It was put upon him to uphold the church's nearly 2,000-year teaching on the unbreakability between unity and procreativity, between bonding and babies, between fidelity and fruitfulness, between all of these realities that are incarnated in the marital bond. And some years go by. And the commission, looking at this, grows into sociologists and psychologists and people who know so much, and yet whose results tell us so little. Pope Paul VI gets a majority report in one hand, in which most of the people in his life are saying, Holy Father, time to change. And he gets a minority report in the other hand, which says, Holy Father, please, we beg you, do not change this teaching. In what is probably the most heroic act of his pontificate, he upholds the teachings on marriage and the family in his encyclical Humanae Vitae in 1968. Now part of that minority commission was Cardinal Carol Wojtyla, 
who figures prominently into the composition of Humanae Vitae and then into its catechesis about 10 years later. Wojtyla was a young and charismatic archbishop and cardinal in Poland, and Paul VI convokes him to Rome, and Wojtyla's visa is denied, so he can't go. And so he writes a personal, not so much a letter, but a kind of essay, a position paper to Paul VI, and eventually, just before the, the publication of Humanae Vitae, when Wojtyla is received in audience to Paul VI, he clasps him on the shoulders, and he looks at Wojtyla and he says, Your Eminence, what you shared with me will be reflected in my next encyclical. And so as John was saying, a kind of ghost author of Humanae Vitae. Paul VI never writes another encyclical for 10 years. Humanae Vitae was his last. It is said that he probably fell into a kind of at least minor depression, if not something more serious, and becomes even more reclusive at the end of his pontificate until he is hardly ever seen, and he dies. He was quoted as saying, every single night I open my mail and in each letter I find a thorn. It is a very, very difficult job to be the Supreme Pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church, whatever our opinions might be posthumously about the degree of heroic virtue of any pontificate or another. Now we know that John Paul I is elected, he lasts three weeks, he dies. A new conclave is convoked, Wojtyla leaves to enter into the new conclave. It is said that when Wojtyla came home from the conflict, excuse me, from the, from the um, convocation that elected his predecessor, John Paul I, he was very quiet, he was very reclusive, and he was very introverted. It seems that he knew that he was very, very close. And many people say that when he left for this conclave, he knew that he wasn't going to come home wearing red. And so Wojtyla sat under the beautiful depiction of St. Michael's Sistine Chapel, and he sees the strong hand of God the Father reaching out to touch the limp hand of Adam, which is not reaching far enough to reach to the Father's love. John Paul II, writing a poem, or writing a reflection in 2002, says the man that is elected in a conclave to be the Vicar of Christ has the charge of maintaining the dignity and the greatness of the man depicted in that chapel. When John Paul II, then Wojtyla, went to Rome in 1978, he was working on a book called Catechesis on Human Love. It was supposed to be a writing, an offering for Polish Catholics to help them to understand what Humanae Vitae taught. Because after Paul VI wrote the document, Unfortunately, he didn't do very well in catechizing people to help them understand its import and its loveliness. As we alluded to earlier, theologians, not only American but internationally, backlashed against Paul VI so hard and had confessors already leading people into sin before the document was published saying, certainly the church will change her teachings. You can go ahead and contracept. When John Paul II is elected pope, He's got quite the charge in front of him. Now please remember what happens when a man is elected pope. He immediately has to change his life on a dime and get a program of pastoral leadership. He has to say, this is what I'm going to do. So the first thing that John Paul II does is he writes an encyclical before the Blessed Sacrament all about the person of Jesus Christ. And the first line in that encyclical says, Jesus Christ is the center of the universe and of human history. And so he takes a kind of high Christology and holds Christ out 
as the image in whom we are to live our lives. And then in his first set of Wednesday audiences, which lasted the first five and most dynamic years of his life, he gives this catechesis on human love, a writing which was supposed to be relegated to Polish Catholics, becomes a catechetical teaching for the entire world and the universal church. In what is sometimes called theology of the body, more commonly in Europe, the catechesis on human love, John Paul II upholds the dignity and the duties of that man depicted in the Sistine Chapel, and he helps couples to understand why, not so much that contraception is wrong, but why marital chastity is right, because it invigorates them. It makes them more attractive to one another. It holds out their dignity as something to be upheld and not denigrated. It helps them to live their image and likeness of God as a communio personarum, as a communion of persons. And it helps them to open their souls wide to receive divine grace. Now all of this talk about contraception, isn't the church just hung up on her morality? Can't she get past her rules and her regulations? Isn't she just prudish? And can't she just get with the times? My brothers and sisters, if we understand the moral life as a life that is centered upon love and freedom, then we will understand why the Pope and so many popes before him taught what he did and what they did on artificial contraception. And the reason is this, is that if we are bound, we cannot be free. And if we are not free to choose, we cannot love. We come like puppets on a string, like marionettes on the end. And we are not free to live the call to love. When John Paul II taught what he taught, whatever the, the attending problems of modernism might have been with that pontificate, his moral pontificate was incredibly strong. We can look at the prayer convocation in Assisi where things happen that shouldn't have happened, which was kind of a pluralism of religions, and we can say, not a good idea. We can look at him kissing the Quran and say, not a good idea. We can look at his globe trotting, spending more time in foreign countries than he did in Rome appointing bishops which would lead children around the Catholic Church, and we can say, not a good idea. But when we look at every single one of his moral teachings on human life and human love, we can say, thank you, Holy Father, for standing with so many other people would not have had the courage to stand for. Here's the problem with contraception. And if you don't mind, I'm going to end this talk on a biological note. Contraception works in basically three ways. It works through withdrawal, barrier methods, or chemical methods. In a withdrawal, a man practices what is called onanism. And because his marital act is to terminate in his wife's body as a complete and total gift of self, he takes away that gift of self. It's like saying, I love you, but keeping your fingers crossed behind your back. And what happened to Onan in the Bible when he did that? But he was struck dead by God. Secondly, couples can choose to practice barrier methods like diaphragms or condoms. Now couples, whether you're dating or whether you're married, I want you to picture your first date. If you would have shown up at that other person's door in a suit of armor and a sword and said, I love you, but that's exactly what barrier methods of contraception do. I love you, but I'm going to give myself to you, but not my fertility, not the deepest part of me. The third and the most insidious way in which contraception works is through chemical methods. And this happens through a kind of triple shot against a woman 
her femininity and her body. Now we've got Norplant, we've got Depo-Provera, but the most common way that contraception is enacted is through the infamous pill. How does that work? The first way it works is that it tricks a woman's body into thinking that she's pregnant, and so she won't ovulate. And if she's not ovulating, she can't conceive. Except that sometimes the pill fails, and she does ovulate. Now by the way, when she takes the pill, all kinds of things begin to happen in her body. She can be put into a semi-diabetic state. She can be put at the risk of cervical cancer. She can be put at the risk of breast cancer. Her mental capacity and acuity tends to drop, and her rate of infertility tends to rise. I would ask you, gentlemen, why in the world would you do this to someone you love? Why would you allow it to be done to your daughters? Why would you allow it to be done to your sisters? Why would you allow it to be done to your wives, who you have sworn to protect? So this is what happens among the first taking of the pill. The woman is thinking, that is her body is telling her that she's pregnant, except sometimes it fails. So the second mode of attack is to attack her cervix. Now you'll excuse me, I know we're eating and this is rather biological for a kind of restaurant talk, but you need to know this. It takes three components to make a healthy baby, not just two. It's not just healthy sperm and a healthy egg. It's healthy sperm, healthy egg, and healthy cervical fluid. If a woman doesn't produce that fluid, she's not going to get pregnant, no matter how healthy that sperm and how healthy that egg is. What does the cervical fluid do? It works like a kind of brilliant system in the woman's body which filters out genetically inferior sperm and filters in genetically superior sperm. Now tell me there's no God. Then what it does is it keeps the sperm alive. If a sperm hits air, it will die within a matter of hours, but when it hits that cervical fluid, it will live for a matter of days so that it can travel to where it needs to go and a baby is conceived. That's the second way the pill works, is that it breaks down her cervix so it won't produce that fluid, except sometimes it fails. And so the third mode of attack, and that's precisely what it is on a woman's body, is that when that woman conceives, that little tiny baby needs a place to implant in order to be fed, to get nutrients, and to be able to travel back down the fallopian tubes into her womb. And so the pill will wear away the inside of the woman's uterus so that that baby has nowhere to implant and she will have a spontaneous abortion without even knowing it. Women who contracept and who are sexually active regularly will lose two babies a year to one baby every two years. That's the rate. Now I don't say any of this to shame you, no matter what your past practices might have been. I'm not saying any of this to break into where I don't belong into the marital bond. But if priests aren't preaching this, and if priests aren't teaching this, then how in the world are our couples going to know? What are the other harms that contraception brings? It's not only to the woman's body, it's to the marital bond. Here's what happens in a woman's body which harms the marital bond. When a woman is cycling naturally, she becomes naturally attractive to the men in her life. I will never tire of telling women in my life, whether they are my parishioners, whether they are my penitents, my directees, my friends, or my family members, you are already beautiful. You don't need to do anything to be attractive to men. When you woke up this morning, you were beautiful. 
Adding chemicals to yourself doesn't enhance you, it degrades you. What happens if you're contracepting? The natural pheromonic work that's happening in your body, which gives off a kind of, the best way to explain the pheromones would be a kind of non-sensible sense of smell, which draws men to you, is broken down. And a wonderful study was done to prove this. A group of men, and this is not a joke, this is true, a group of men were brought into a room and they were shown a kind of list of slides of what we would kind of call supermodel women. And they were asked to rate those women. I'm not advocating this, I'm saying this is how the study went. Okay? <laughs> they were asked to rate the women. And of course the women got some pretty high ratings. Then they had the men leave the room and they took a rag and they soaked it in female pheromone and they put it in the corner of the room so, not, so the men didn't know it was there. And they brought the men back into the room and they asked them to rate so-called average women along a slate of slides. Guess which women rated higher? The average women. What does that tell us? It tells us that the kind of sex that the church promotes is natural sex. Because the kind of sex that marriage is made for is natural sex. The stats go something like this. You all know that the divorce rate is 50% in modern culture, right? You've heard that. Actually, just a little bit above 50%. Now, a common phenomenon today, and I don't say this to, to shame anybody or to judge anybody, but is to cohabitate before a couple gets married. On the surface, this makes sense. Putting moral consideration aside, the argument goes, I wouldn't buy a car without test driving it, right? Except your girl is not a car. She's a human person to be treasured, not something to be driven into the ground. And so what happens is rather than discerning a marriage, a couple marries because they are living together, rather than living together because they're married. When sexual addiction kicks in, whether it is with oneself or one other, we can't think straight. This is why the church teaches what she does on chastity. Chastity does not mean saying no. Chastity means saying yes. Yes to integrated love. Yes to undivided mind, body, and heart. Yes to sexual purity according to our state in life. Why? For freedom and for love. So our couples who are cohabitating don't have a lower divorce rate. They're divorcing at 75%. This is why it is not charitable to be in let's say, a public setting with your friends in an appropriate conversational context to know that they're living together and not to tell them this. You don't want to do divorce preparation. You want to do marriage preparation. And the best way to do marriage preparation as a friend is to tell the truth. Oh boy, Father, bad news. So you've got a 50% divorce rate, a 75% divorce rate for couples who are cohabitating. Can you send us off on a high note? Yes, I can. Unfortunately, the divorce rate in the Catholic Church is the same as in modern society because Catholics aren't living their faith. It's 50%. Let's end where we began. What was the very, very first command in the book of Genesis? Be fruitful and multiply. What do you think happens when a couple does that and does not introduce artificial contraception into their bond? They divorce at a less than 1% rate. Less than 1%. Think about it. You don't even need faith to think about it. 
If God said, be fruitful and multiply, and couples take that first and primary commandment right into the heart of their marital bond, and they at least intend to live it and allow God, them, God to bless them with children, why would they fail? And so I end here with a four-fold way to save marriage and the family. If you are having sex before you're married, stop. If you are contracepting within your marriage, stop. Pray together daily and worship God together weekly. And lastly, tithe. Because if you get sex, God, and money all in their right order in your marital bond, there is nothing that can bring you down. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to take questions. Um, if you can speak loudly, that would be great. And I'll repeat the question and then answer as best as I can. You can touch on anything that I just spoke on or something that I didn't speak on. I already like you. The, the question is, why would there have been a need, a need to restate an already existing teaching? I wish I had a good answer for that. Um, it is, I, I want to be clear when I'm giving my opinion, when I'm giving, this is my opinion. It is my opinion that the more traditionally stated teachings of the church, because they are less ambiguous, less wordy, and more direct, are a more effective way to teach. And so simply pointing back to what one of his predecessors already said would have been much less stress on him and much more effective for the life of the faithful and told his bishops and his priests, catechize that, it's already been well said. Perhaps it's because a modern response could have appealed to a modern mind, but we actually didn't see that happen. So very good question. Yes? Since you're what? Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Saint Francis de Sales says we catch many more flies with honey than with vinegar, and it's true. The way to talk about sin is not to talk about sin. You talk about love. You talk about freedom. You talk about dignity. You talk about building one another up. Only in the last place, but it does have a place, do you talk about sin. So what's an easy way that you can tell non-believers about sin? You can say that um, sin is turning away from God, or if they don't even believe in God, what we talk about as sin is taking away from human, happen human happiness and human flourishing, and the opposite of sin takes us toward where we want to go. And I think everyone can recognize that there's a goal to be achieved. Whatever it is that they want to call it, we take them one step of the way. We don't take them from point A to point Z in one conversation unless you've been given an extreme grace. And they have two to be able to listen to you. So start with the positive and remain always in the positive. The gospel is essentially positive. It is not prohibitive. 
There are prohibitions, but the gospel is essentially a gospel of love. That's why gospel means good news. Thank you. John. So a two-part question, Father. Number one, I've heard it. Uh, I've heard what you're saying about the physiological consequences of hormonal contraception. But where, what's a resource you would recommend as far as like a scientific study for that? And number two, uh, so there's so many like pandemic, seemingly modern, skyrocketing physiological problems from peanut allergies to gluten intolerance to autism. And it seems logical that a lot of this is caused by the genetic chaos created by hormonal contraception, yes. appropriation. Yes. Uh, is that aligned with your opinion? And, and then is, is there anywhere we could look that's more than just speculation? Is that, is that study that you're yeah, so, okay, so what John's asking is you're asking what are, what are some sources that we can go to to look at the, at the kind of biological medical end of what I've spoken about? Right, because for a lot of these people that are talking to their secular friends, I heard it from a priest at a great talk, is it right. going to cut the cake? So right. what can we throw at Okay, so there, there's, a, there's a few resources that, that, that I would recommend. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give a brief word on natural family planning because it's going to talk about what you're talking about. So... The Catholic position is not to treat marriage as a mechanism that is simply a baby maker. There are legitimate reasons why a, why a couple might choose not to welcome a child into their life at this moment. The reasons could be financial, they could be psychological, they could be social, um, but they have to be real and they have to be well discerned. If a couple wishes to, and I'm talking about a married couple, I hope that's Needless to say, but I'll say it, I'm talking about married couples being sexually active. If they wish to remain sexually active, then there are ways to know with great precision the, uh, the woman's cycle so they can utilize non-fertile periods for sexual activity, which has a greater success rate than artificial contraception. Okay, so this will fail less than artificial contraception, even if a woman is irregular in her cycle. The three best methods that I know of are all originated by Catholics and two of them by Catholic doctors, or actually maybe three of them by Catholic doctors. The Billings Method, which comes from Dr. Billings in Australia. The Creighton Method, which builds on the Billings Method and which is established at, um, uh, in Nebraska at the Pope Paul VI Center by Dr. Hilgers, and Couple to Couple are sometimes called Symptothermal. All of those organizations have medical studies that talk about this and, and like essays and position papers. So if you go to Billings Method, Creighton Method, or Couple to Couple, you'll find this stuff. Okay? Yeah, and then the second part. I, I, I don't know medically enough. I mean, the studies that I've seen point very strongly to what you're talking about, to like this genetic kind of decomposition, allergies, health breakdown being due to, uh, or being at least partly attributable to the use of artificial contraception and then it's being kind of flushed into our, our water lines and everything and then we're ingesting that. I have to be honest, that's, I'm not a doctor. It sounds totally reasonable to me and what I've read sounds pretty convincing, but I don't know any more than anybody else who would have read something like that. Yeah. Pardon me, Father. Uh, this might be a bit of a bad joke, um, but it's just something that I noticed um, with your talk. Um, you were mentioning these analogies um, with regards to the various birth control methods. Uh, and the second one in particular, with 
barrier method, right? You, 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 you invoked this imagery of a person walking up to a little girl's house wearing a suit of armor, how that doesn't sound romantic. Now, when I heard that, it seemed a little romantic to me, so I thought I would read through the analogy. Okay. It's more like, I think, wearing a hazmat suit. Wearing a hazmat suit, okay. Now, you haven't copyrighted that. Can I use that in the next talk instead? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yes. I don't think that there's, okay, so the question was, if a couple who are engaged has a legitimate reason to want to hold off on the birth of their first child after their marriage, would it not be wiser to wait until they're married? I could argue both sides of that question. Um, it certainly would be a more traditional position simply to say, yes, wait until you're married and then, you know, don't even practice NFP. Because remember, just because a couple is practicing NFP doesn't mean they don't have a contraceptive mentality. NFP can be misused. The, the, the prohibition against contraception has nothing to do with its artificiality. I mean, Tylenol is artificial, but the church doesn't teach against that, right? The point is, is that contraception does what it means. Contracepcio means against the beginning. It's against the beginning of life. NFP, when used correctly, rightfully, and reservedly, is not against the beginning of anything, but it certainly could be if it was misused. So I, I, myself, I think that that needs to be uh, the discernment of the couple and a priest that they trust to understand the deeper nature of their situation, why they need to wait, how long they need to wait, you know, what would be the reasons for this? It does have to be a grave reason. Like, I, I can't afford my summer vacation is not a grave reason. I want cable TV is not a grave reason. Um, I like my own me time is not a grave reason. And I, I'm saying this because these are all things that I've heard. So yes, it does. Um, in the encyclical Humanae Vitae, Paul VI talks about those grave reasons. He, he, he lists, uh, I think, a, uh, a list of four. There is something that I didn't say in the talk. I'm going to be very brief, but I do want to say. Paul VI in Humanae Vitae gave what many think is a prophetic prediction about what would happen if contraception were to come into widespread use in modern society. This has nothing to do with the Catholic faith. This just has to do with kind of smart biology and smart sociology. Remember, he's writing in 1968. He said, first of all, morals generally would decline. He said, secondly, respect for women would decline. Thirdly, reproductive technology would be on the rise. And what he was talking about was specifically like eugenics or the manipulation of, of funding to different countries based on whether or not they would supply sterility methods and contraception and abortion to their people. So if you want our big US dollars, you will show us on paper that you're allowing full sterility, full abortion, and full access to the pill for your women. But this is also part of the explanation of the founding of Planned Parenthood and abortuaries. Why is it, and again, this is, has nothing to do with faith, this is sociology. Why is it that little black babies and little Hispanic babies are aborted at a rate far greater, far greater than little white babies? 
Is that maybe because you find Planned Parenthood and abortuaries in poor neighborhoods where these people live? And who put them there? But the people who founded them. That is not benevolent and that is not an accident. And so when we feed into a contraceptive and sterilitic mentality, we're feeding into racism and into race cleansing. And nobody needs to have the faith to know that that's not holy and that's not good. Lastly, the last prediction of Humanae Vitae said that infidelity among married couples would rise. Now doesn't that sound odd? Why would infidelity rise among married couples if they're using contraception? Well, look at it this way. Let's say the Smiths live in this house and the Jones live in this house. When Mr. Smith and Mrs. Smith make love, they will have a baby that looks like them. But if Mr. Smith and Mrs. Smith are contracepting, and Mr. and Mrs. Jones are contracepting, the very thing that held their bond together, which is the procreation of a new life, separates the marital act from its intention. So Mr. Smith hooks up with Miss, Miss, Mrs. Jones because the contraceptive mentality kind of encourages that kind of infidelity. If sex is no longer for babies, but sex is for pleasure, and babies are to go with marriage, but babies are out of the equation, then who cares about whether or not the bond is marital or not? And that's a key reason why contraception has raised right along with the, with the rates of marital infidelity. Yeah, Mike. Good talk, Father. Um, on those points of the contraceptive mentality, um, a lot of times when we hear that artificial contraception, it seems to me that it's kind of like when we talk about the bad weather, there's no such thing as bad weather, it's just weather. And it seems like contraception is just contraception, no You're right. I was actually, so there's, there's one thing, I'm going to say something, it's a little bit autobiographical, but to bring out something that I forgot about. Um, uh, I didn't have John say this, but I was a student uh, for well, three or four years, five years, at the John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and the Family in Rome. And I was called out on this in my doctoral defense because I use, I'm so used to saying artificial contraception, we should just talk about contraception because any form of contraception is illicit. This is what I forgot to say in the talk. In 1981, John Paul II was in the middle of his catechesis on human love audience, sometimes called Theology of the Body. And he had had it on his heart very strongly to found a pontifical institute for marriage and the family. And so he commissioned at the time Father, Car uh, Father Kafara, who then became Cardinal Kafara, to be his first president. The institute was founded on May 13, 1981. May 13, 1981 is the day that John Paul II was shot. So he was shot during the Theology of the Body audience in which he was going to announce the founding of the Institute on Marriage and the Family. Now what did he say? When that assassin, I think his name was Ali Agha, when he shot the bullet, John Paul II, one hand shot the bullet and another hand guided it. That was the feast of Our Lady of Fatima. That bullet is in the crown of Our Lady in Fatima. So the fact that an Institute on Marriage and the Family, founded by the Pope of the Family, was seeking to be kind of brought down should be no surprise to us. And to add to the drama, when Father Kafara wrote to Sister Lucia, who was then, now she's passed away, she passed away just within months of John Paul II, when he wrote to her in 1981 and asked her to pray for the Institute, he did not expect a response back. But she wrote back a detailed letter to him in which she said that the final battle between the human person and Satan would be waged over marriage and the family. And that letter is in the archives of the Institute. 
And I have to say, some of you who follow Catholic news, especially on Catholic blogs, might have heard about the kind of co-opting of the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and the Family, and that co-opting is basically true. When I was there, I hardly, I can't imagine an institute more full of life and love and orthodoxy and solidity and all the right things. So please continue to pray for the institute because it does still exist, and we have to uphold what we were founded to do. Yeah. For most of the people in this room, we are preceded by two generations, parents and grandparents. For whom, even at their most pious, uh, or this is normal, contraception was normal for them. Right. And as we know, contraception is more deadly to the human person and to a marriage than even adultery. It's not even adultery, it's contrary to natural law. Right. So for many of us, and not just our cultures and our secular friends, but our parents and our grandparents, if their marriage hasn't been destroyed yet, it's almost internally destroyed by contraception and contraceptive mentality. What can we do uh, for them? Like, how can we? And, and or if there's a, if there's people in this room who have, who have struggled with this in the past, what do we do? Like, how do we recover from this? Actually, how do we actually recover from this epidemic? And how do we pre how do we teach people out of it? Um. This epidemic does not exist in a shell unto itself. So one of the best ways to deal with this is not to compartmentalize it, but to see it as the heart of the moral life and the heart of the life of faith, right? Remember, that's just the reason that I started from a, a high level. By high, I don't mean intellectually high. I mean starting with the scriptures, analogies to the sacred liturgy, with the Holy Eucharist, with the life of the Blessed Trinity, with the way that the family mirrors the Trinity. This has to be a part of our sacramental life and our spiritual life. And what I mean by this is the renewal of the church. Pope Benedict XVI said that he was a firm believer that at the heart of the crisis of the church was the heart of the crisis of the sacred liturgy because what happens at the altar affects everything else. It affects our conception of doctrine. It affects our apprehension of the moral life. It affects our access to grace in the mystical life. It affects our inspiration to conversion that we will or will not experience because of what is happening or not happening at the altar. So it is my, and again, I'm speaking of an, I have an opinion. This is not the church teaches. The movement toward tradition has to embrace, I mean really embrace all of what is beautiful about the church. It's not just a liturgical movement. It's a moral movement. It's a mystical movement. It's a social movement. It's a cultural movement. It's an intellectual movement. And by living the truth of the gospel, we become the greatest witnesses. But living the truth of the gospel doesn't mean not opening our mouths. It means first being the change that we wish to see, and then appropriately and tactfully speaking about that change. Even with our parents, our grandparents, our sons and daughters, our brothers and sisters, our aunts and our uncles, our friends next door. We don't want to Bible thump people. That doesn't work, it's unattractive, and it's not the way that Jesus taught. So I've heard it said that we don't want so much a kind of new spin on the evangelization, we want the old evangelization, which is teaching the gospel as Jesus did, one way of life. Amen. What about for couples who are entering into marriage who they don't have a couple who want to embrace and fall in love in their marriage, but encounter infertility? And response 
fundamental disposition toward being pro-life is an internal disposition. A baby is always a blessing from God. We can't do that without God's grace. Not having a baby does not mean that God is not giving His grace. Just like if I break my arm or I'm diagnosed with cancer or I have a terminal disease doesn't mean that I'm being smitten, you know, smite by God. Um, one of my best, best, best friends is in a situation just like this. And so what do we have to do when anybody is suffering with anything? We have to point them toward the cross and the one who hangs upon it. That is real and that is the heart of Christianity, which is why our cross has a corpus on it always. We are adorers of the Holy Cross and our Lord who hung upon it. Now that might sound very, very bleak, but through the cross comes salvation. We can't get to Easter Sunday without Good Friday. We can't achieve the crown without the cross. And we have to remind people that although they might not be conceiving, there is a conception of love, a spiritual conception that no one and no thing can take away from them. And they unite their sufferings to the sufferings of Jesus in reparation for all of the couples out there who are fertile, but who are dampening their fertility through contraception and sterilization. I'm going to take maybe, let's say, two more questions, and then I'll be available for a little bit while longer to speak to people one-on-one -on -one if you like, okay? Yes. Oh, I don't have any questions, but no. I wanted to share um, an article that somebody just sent me randomly, and it's about when artificial hormones take over your body, and it explains how the artificial contraceptive actually works on, our, on a woman's body, which I thought would be interesting for you. Yes. But I, I, I think I want to share it with you, yeah. so is there a... Maybe yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yes. It's on the website Natural Womanhood. Natural Womanhood. Know your body. Locked in. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. What you presented here tonight seems to be a very clear presentation of the church's teaching. And I wanted to ask you, and you don't have to answer this question, but uh, it seems to be, it seems Yes. some kind of a concerted effort amongst um, uh, uh, bishops, priests, and even the Holy Father himself to bury this aspect of John Paul II's legacy. What are we supposed to do with that? We live the legacy. That legacy does not belong to John Paul II. He was, he was transmitting what the church had always known and taught in a way that modern man can understand through his own particular lens. This isn't about John Paul II or any other singular pope for bad or for good. This is about the church's tradition. What does that mean? Traditio is something that is alive. 
and it is handed on from person to person as we would hand on a beautiful newborn baby with a delicacy and with love. We live that love and we don't pay attention to the capitulation that's going on around us through prelates and priests. Sorry. Yes. Well, there's a there's a very interesting, but there's a to his point, tradere, who's where you get your traditio, yeah, has a double meaning, right? Huh? It's to hand on, yes, or to hand over. Ah. It's the same word that translates tradition and betrayal. So what do we do when we encounter? The Don't betrayal? betray. Right. <laughs> Don't pass it on. But when you see it, when you see the betrayal. Even at high well, look, I mean, it's 9 o'clock on a Monday night. You all are, you know, good-looking young people. You can be doing anything you want, but you're listening to me talk about contraception. That's doing something, isn't it? I mean, you're doing it. You're living your life. You're living your faith. You're joyfully sharing the gospel. I don't know of any other formula. And I would be very, very suspicious if another formula came up. This is what we do, and we do it in all sectors of public life. At a bar, in a church, in your workplace, in your home, you do it. Amen. Yeah. Amen. So listen, let's end with a prayer. Um, I'm, I'm happy to remain and, and visit with you for a while afterwards if you'd like. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, in this world's present darkness, we trust in you, the light of the world. We trust you to satiate our thirst for divine love, and we trust you as the living bread which feeds our lives. We would ask through the heart of Mary, most holy, with whom you lived with the just heart of St. Joseph and the holy home of Nazareth, that you would bless us, keep us, preserve us, and keep us strong by your grace. Asking this in all things, through the intercession of the same Mary most holy, in the name of the most blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good night. Sponsored by St. Joseph Morello Parish in Granite Bay, California, and St. Mel Parish in Fair Oaks, California. Our podcast features recordings of live talks delivered to young adults packed into the best pub in California, Monk's Cellar. If you're age 18 through 39 and find yourself in the Sacramento area, join us at a live event. Learn more at CatholicVeritas.com.